Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. The final Jeopardy answer is 15 and 44. What is the question? The question is, what is the record of the NBA Houston Rockets, 15 and 44? Now, you might ask, okay, by the way, that is the worst record in the NBA, the absolute worst record in the NBA. All right, you might say, okay, Jeff, well, what, why are we why are we starting off the program talking about 15 and 44? Well, it actually relates to something else, which is Wagner's rule of life number four, which is nothing good happens outside of a strip club at two in the morning. Although this isn't, it, it's not quite appropriate, because I might start thinking about having to readjust this. Instead of saying nothing good happens outside a strip club at two in the morning, I might have to say nothing good happens outside a strip club at 6.30 in the morning. Here is the story, if you haven't been following it. Sterling Brown, the former Milwaukee Buck, who is probably best known around here for an incident that occurred a couple years ago with the Milwaukee Police Department. You will remember the story. Brown is parked illegally in a, a disabled parking space in front of a Walgreens in the middle of the night. The, the police roll up. They are investigating. And, and a number of those types of pharmacies had been held up over the years. And so they're investigating this. And you'll, you'll remember the story. They, they roll up and Brown is detained. And then what ends up happening is all of a sudden you have all sorts of other police officers on the scene and Brown is taken into custody. And there's this huge outrage about this. And ultimately, there's lawsuits. I'm not sure the case has actually been settled. The city attorney's office recommended a payment to Brown of $750,000. And uh, the Brown, the folks, his, his representatives agreed to this. But I'm not sure that the Common Council has ever signed off on it. The, the most recent story I can find is in January, and, and they had tabled it. They hadn't agreed to pay him. So that, that, that might be hanging fire. So why are we talking about 15 and 44? Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 in the morning. And Sterling Brown and his confrontation with police. Well, if you haven't heard this, Sterling Brown is back in the news. He now plays for the Houston Rockets, who have the worst record in the NBA. Here is the deal. He was, um, that is Brown, was severely injured Sunday night, Monday morning in an altercation outside a strip club. Here is the story as it appears in the Miami Herald. Miami-Dade police responded to a call of a fight outside a local strip club at 6.53 a.m. Monday. 6.53 a.m. when they found Rockets guard Sterling Brown with multiple lacerations throughout his body. Police showed up at the booby trap on the river in Miami, after an anonymous call about a fight in the parking lot at 6.30 a.m. The <clears throat> booby trap is a fully nude strip club with four locations that are open 24 hours a day in South Florida. They sell bottles of Ace of Spaces champagne for a 1000 bucks. 
Magnum bottles of Don Julio, I'm quoting from the story, Magnum bottles of Don Julio 1942 for 1942 bucks, and bottles of Hennessy Paradise for $3,600. This is not Ricky's on State where the popcorn is free when the bartender rings the bell. So, all right, so Brown... Brown is at this strip club. According to the reports, a handful of rockets were at the club. It's 6.30 in the morning. They had a game that night, by the way. A handful of rockets were at that club and had a sprinter van that would take them back to the hotel. Sprinter vans are like these vans that you, you refigure them so that they can seat you know, six or nine people or whatever. So a handful of rockets were at the club. Um, so they're, they're planning to go back to the hotel when the festivities, you know, um, end. I, I guess 6.30 in the morning was the time that, hey, we, we got to go back. When he was leaving, Brown inadvertently tried to get into the wrong van, which led to a heated exchange and the men in the van beating him up and hitting him in the head with a bottle. Uh, the Athletic reports that Brown's Rockets teammates, including Kevin Porter Jr., stepped in to save him. Porter has been ruled out of Wednesday's game because the league's health and safety protocols. We're going to get to that in just a minute. The Rockets played in Orlando on Sunday and traveled to Miami after the game where they took on the heat on Monday night. So they play a game in Orlando, they travel to Miami, and the first thing a number of members of the 15 and 44 Rockets do is let's go out to the all-night strip club. Okay, so it does sound like, I mean, somebody hit Brown in the head or the face with a broken bottle, and apparently um, it was... It, it it was seriously injured. It, it was very bloody, I guess. Um, according to another report I'm looking at, it was not immediately known if any incident reports were filed with the police. But other reports that I am looking at say that, um, well, the, according to the Miami-Dade Police Department, um, when the police show up, uh, the 26-year-old, that would be Sterling Brown, was with another man, but neither wanted to give a statement and the basketball player refused medical treatment. Now, we, we know ultimately he was taken to the hospital where he got lots of stitches and things of, of the like. But I, I don't know what the larger point here is other than it doesn't seem like Sterling Brown learned very much from whatever it was that happened in Milwaukee a couple years ago. The other dazzling sort of detail about this is that the NBA is apparently not happy. But get this, I don't get the sense that they're so much not happy that you have a bunch of their players that are out at a strip club at 6.30 in the morning, but rather they're upset because they have health and safety protocols involving COVID where you're not supposed to go to bars, you're not supposed to go to restaurants, and presumably you're not supposed to go to strip joints where my guess is... I don't know the the COVID protocols and the spacing and the wearing masks. My guess is that that's probably not enforced too heavily. I mean, think about it. We 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 make we make the coaches wear masks on the sidelines, and yet you've got the players who are taking sprinter vans and they are heading out to you know the the, the strip clubs in the you know the, the middle of the night. Look, I, I don't I don't know what the larger point of this is. Other than, and as I said at the time, and a number of you have disagreed with me, I I don't know that I think Sterling Brown is entitled to $750,000. Matter of fact, I I don't think he is. Having said that, 
I, I said at the time, the Milwaukee police, I don't think, handled the situation outside of that Walgreens. I don't think they handled it right because what happened is it, it escalated quickly. Their concern was at that time, that night, their concern was that this is a guy who might be looking to rob the, the store. It wasn't. And it was quickly determined that it wasn't. Then once they found out that the guy was a member of the Milwaukee Bucks, I think you had a couple police officers that sort of copped an attitude and things escalated. And I'm one of these guys that believes firmly that the police should be doing everything they can not to not to escalate situations. Sometimes situations escalate because the, the person that's being questioned by police does it. In this particular case, I think the police had a number of opportunities to kind of, you know, settle this down. And once they determined that there, there wasn't really criminal activity going on, all you have to do is give the guy a ticket for parking in the the disabled spot or whatever, or across two spaces, whatever he had done, and, and send him on his way. I think they escalated this. Whether it was worth $750,000 is a completely different story, and whether it showed racial animus, well, I, I guess that you know people can decide for themselves. But the bigger picture here is it does not appear that Sterling Brown has learned anything. And, I, I look, I, I'm glad he, he wasn't seriously injured or killed i mean obviously that's the situation but i mean seriously what's going on you after that late night inter you know altercation a couple years later you have him and a bunch of his houston rocket buddies at an all-night strip club getting into this sort of of incident and i mean i don't know beyond the police report what what it was that happened don't know why he jumped into the wrong van don't know why the what happened in that van that caused somebody to, that caused this fight and caused somebody to hit him with a bottle. Don't know any of that sort of stuff. But I do think it sort of raises these questions. And if I'm the owner of the Houston Rockets, the 15 and 44 Houston Rockets, I do think I'm asking some questions about what, what is going on with my team that you have at least some of the players that have decided that, hey, we're going to roll into town and we're going to spend the night at an all night high end strip club, you know, in Miami getting involved in situations like this. Because if you're in the hotel asleep like you should be, you know, preparing and, and Brown was injured. He hadn't played since, um, I think April 10th because of a knee injury. But, you know, if, if you're where you should be, None of this sort of stuff happens. In any event, Sterling Brown back in the news, yet another late-night altercation, this one outside an all-night strip club in Miami, the booby trap. So maybe we need to modify Wagner's rule of life number four. Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 in the morning, and nothing good really happens outside the booby trap at 6.30 a.m. Go figure. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Everyone 16 and older is now eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. Do you have questions about the vaccine, getting back to work, or opening schools? Please join John McCure on Tuesday, April 27th, for a special WTMJ roundtable, VaxFax 2.0. John will be joined by Dr. Ben Weston, a leading health official in Milwaukee County, to help answer your questions about the vaccine. Want to hear your question on the air? Give us a call at 414-203-8105. That's 414-203-8105. And don't forget to join us at 414 4 o'clock on Tuesday, April 27th, for a special WTMJ roundtable, VaxFax 2.0, on News Radio WTMJ, sponsored by Dave Dracamp Heating. I've always wondered, I guess, I've heard of 24 hour strip clubs, and outside of, of Las Vegas, I guess I've wondered who goes, who goes to a strip club at 6 o'clock in the morning? 
Now, maybe maybe people that work third shift and, and get off work, and so that's kind of like their five o'clock. So that, that would seem to me a little bit odd, but maybe if you're a third shifter. But I've really wondered, who, who is it that goes to strip clubs? And, and who is it that goes to strip clubs where bottles of liquor are $3,600? Well, now we know. Six o'clock in the morning, it's NBA players who, I guess, just don't have enough to do with themselves. Two words, video games. All right, we'll see how this all plays out. Yesterday on today on yesterday on the program, we were talking about the shooting in in Columbus, Ohio of the 16-year-old girl. And the the point I was making and that I would say I think most of you agreed with me on is that the the accusations that the police officer acted improperly that this was it was a rush to judgment and it was unfair i mean th- this was not a george floyd situation this was a situation where you you have a call that's made to police that there's a fight going on the police show up and the police officer, immediately as he comes to the scene, you see a, a 16-year-old. Now, he didn't know she was 16 years old, but you see a person completely and totally out of control, wailing on one person. The girl, as it turns out, has a knife in her hand, whether it was a steak knife or a kitchen knife, don't know. She's got it in her right hand. She knocks one girl down. Then she turns around. There's another girl that's pinned against a car, and the the... The perpetrator with the knife, you know, in her fist, she's she's going to stab the other girl and the police officer making this instant decision. I mean, this all happens. This isn't nine minutes. This is in 10 seconds. You know, orders her to stop. She doesn't. And then in an effort to make sure she doesn't stab and kill the other girl, she shoots her. He shoots her. And, and it's unfortunate. It's tragic. I, I understand that now there's people that are taking to the streets and they go, oh, you know, that this is terrible. He, he shouldn't have done that. This was some sweet gal and all these type of things. And, and I don't know anything about the girl's background a- at all, except for the fact that it was clear based on that videotape that she was she was intent on killing this other young lady. And if the police officer hadn't have done what he had done and the stabbing would have been allowed to continue, well, then what you end up happening is then you're asking the police officer is damned if he doesn't, damned if he doesn't, because then people are saying, well, why didn't you stop this? You know, somebody else is dead because, you know, you had a chance to stop the woman from attacking the other woman. I, I, I think... You know, this was one where there was a clear rush to judgment, and I think, you know, there's nothing that's come out since this first happened that suggests that the officer wasn't authorized to use lethal force. And if that was your child that was about ready to get stabbed by the other woman, you would agree. I think everybody would agree with that. All right. So that was the that was the like the top take on this. We got a call from one of our, our regular callers who made a very interesting point about this, though. And I've, I've actually been thinking about it for the last 24 hours. If you look at the videotape of this, the police body camera there there's clearly this out of control fight that that is going on and apparently this out of control fight had been going on for for a while at least a few minutes because somebody maybe the girl that got shot maybe somebody else had made this phone call i mean so so there there was this, this fight that had been going on when the police officer rolls up there are a number of people who are just standing around watching the fight occur Nobody is trying to to break this up or nobody's trying to do too much to break this up. And you have people that are watching it. You have people who have pulled out their cell phones and are are video are, are filming this. So so they're they're sitting here, okay, we're 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 documenting this fight. But nobody 
Nobody is jumping in. You don't have three or four people trying to, you know, wrestle one of these people to the ground or separate it. You just have people standing by and watching this. And then the police officer rolls up and nobody's helping. And then he has to end up shooting somebody. And then, well, why did you shoot her? Well, to me, and one of the callers, like I said, raised the question, to all these bystanders, instead of just standing by and watching this go on, why didn't you do something? What, why, why didn't you try to stop this? You know, and we see this happen time after time after time, where you know, the people that are on the scene, instead of intervening, trying to break this stuff up, it's let's pull out the cell phone and let's watch, see what, what happens here. And then, oh, now the cops have showed up. Okay, let, let's film the cops and let's see how their reaction is. You know, maybe, what, what did Hillary Clinton used to say about how it takes a village? When these things are occurring, why is it that people aren't trying to intervene themselves and stop it before it gets out of hand? Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I understand this might be an unpopular position, but in communities where you have these situations, where, where there is there is the violence, there are the fights, I think at some point in time, instead of just standing by and watching I think that there is an obligation that you have as a citizen, as a member of the community, there is an obligation that you have to try to break stuff up. Now, I'm not saying that if somebody pulls out a gun, your job is to jump in front of that that gunman necessarily. But in a situation like this where you've got a fight, where you've got people attacking each other, instead of just standing by and watching it, isn't there some sort of obligation to go in and, and to try to stop it? before it gets out of control, particularly when there's there's a lot of people, particularly when it's a deal where it's it's not just you, but you're there, you're there with a whole bunch of other people, and theoretically five or six people could jump on this girl, for example, and, and take the knife away from her. But nobody did. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Jennifer in East Troy. Hi, Jennifer. Um, hi, Jeff. How are you today? I am well, thank you. Okay, what what, what do you think about this phenomenon that we're we're just going to pull out our cell phones and we're going to we're, we're we're going to watch people just wailing on each other and if somebody gets killed, well, at least we've got it on film. I think it's terrible. Um, I think people should intervene. It's uh, I think. For some reason, it's becoming some form of entertainment for some people. Yeah. Yeah. My, my husband and I are landlords, and we experienced something similar with a group of about 35 people watching two ladies beat on each other, and everybody had their cell phone out. My husband broke it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, see that. Right. And and then, you know, then so you have this whole crap. Now, look, and, and I understand if you've got two people fighting and there's they're just one person. I understand where you might be reluctant to go in and try to separate them. But in a situation like this, when there's a dozen people or the situation you're talking about where there, there's a couple dozen people standing around, you, you could there are just, there's physically enough people to go pull the two people, pull the two combatants aside and, and separate them. There, there, there's just physically enough people to do it. And yet that's not what the default position is. It's let's pull out the cell phones and let's just film this. And if the cops roll up, let's film them and so we can criticize them if we don't like what they've done in trying to break up the fight. 
Absolutely, I agree with that. No, th- thanks. I mean, at, at some point in, in time. Now, again, I, I understand people are texting me and they're saying, well, you know, she, she had a knife. Yeah, well, well, she did have a knife. I, I understand that. But there were also a lot of people that were were there and just kind of were standing by and were watching the thing. And you will never convince me that if collectively a bunch of those people tried to intervene instead of either just watching it or, or egging the people on, that, that this whole sort of thing might have been avoided. Now, do you take a little bit of a risk? Sure, you, you take a little bit of a risk. But if that's going to be the case, certainly don't criticize the police officer when that the police officer comes on the scene and it sees a situation that has escalated to this point maybe the first time somebody threw a punch and keep in mind this fight in in um in columbus had, had been going on for probably at least five to ten minutes i mean so you know we don't exactly know what had happened but we know about eight or ten minutes before the police actually arrive after the 911 call we, we we know that there was a fight that precipitated the call so there's all these people around at some point in time maybe don't we as a society have a right a res- an obligation to try to stop some of this stuff. And look, and I appreciate if somebody's got a gun and is shooting indiscriminately, well, that's that's a different sort of thing if you're going to try to tackle that person. But that's not that's not what this was. Would you put yourself at some risk? Yes. But you're putting yourself at any less risk by standing around with your cell phone videoing it? Um, Tim in Medford. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Tim. I think what you're seeing here is a change in our culture that's not necessarily for the good, and I think that's a result of basically the Internet, which has been around, what, for, I, would you agree, about 30 years, and that is people now have the attitude, especially people of the millennials and Gen Zers who never have known life without the Internet, that if they see something that's either escalating like this or, or going out of control, they realize that if they can video it and either put it on YouTube or some other platform, they can get lots of views, possibly get a check for it. This, they see this more as an opportunity to be famous, irregardless, of, and not think in terms of what can I do to prevent this. Yeah, and you, I think you, that's ingrained in our culture. No, I think, I think there's an element. We're, I'm going to get my 15 minutes of fame. I'm going to stand by, and I'm going to video this. And look, and I, I understand that there are, are situations. I mean, one of the things that, that essentially I think – really helped cement the the George Floyd prosecution was you had that that young lady who stood by and she videoed that. Well, it's it's one thing I'm not saying that, you know, a member of the community should go up and start attacking a police officer and pulling him off. But but I wonder, in the lead up to what happened, how many opportunities did members of that crowd have to try to separate the, the different combatants, to try to get it under control before the police were arrived and before that officer was put in that situation? And my guess is there were multiple occasions that people decided to either egg them on or stand by and watch or, to your point, try to get your 15 minutes of fame by video it and uh, you know, shame on those people. I mean, seriously, just shame on those people who stood by and watched this happen. Exactly, exactly. And unfortunately, I th- I think this whole thing is is here to stay, especially with younger people who have grown up with the internet and know right. nothing else with that. I mean, someone like myself who's a 
who's a younger baby boomer or even some Gen Xers would have enough uh, common sense or enough uh, moral right. decency to try to do something ahead of time. But uh, right, especially when yeah. I don't know. No, thanks. And especially when there, there's multiple people that are there. Like like I say, there's there were a lot of people that were around. So if if you have a group of people that go in and try to separate, and if she's got the knife in her right hand, okay, somebody grabs her arm and somebody else grabs her other arm, and they try to restrain her and things like that. And yes, I appreciate that you're putting yourself at a little bit of a risk. I, I understand that. Now, there's a story. It's kind of funny how this works out. I've been carrying it around since uh, I was in the New York Times on April 4th, and I, I knew there was a topic here, and I was calling. I've been carrying it around, waiting it, waiting for it for an opportunity to kind of pull it out and talk about it. The story is, would you jump in and stop an assault? And it's a story about how there was an, an Asian man that was being attacked in New York City, and there's a, again, there's, there's a video uh, somebody standing there with the video, and it shows like five or six guys just standing around watching it. And it raises exactly the question that I'm asking now. And interestingly, they, they talked to all these psychologists, and they say, you know, the truth is, in most cases, people will, in fact, intervene. They, they will try to stop it. Well, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I certainly would hope so. Let's talk to Marcus on the north side. Marcus, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, how are you doing today? Hi, uh, yeah, excellent uh, topic. Um, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, being a, a black man of 51 years, I can tell you this. Uh, first of all, my first reaction is, and I've been in a number of these situations uh, just being black, that I do not pull out my cell phone and just start videotaping this uh, to get fame. Uh, I think that the situation where there was a, a, a major chances of to de-escalate the situation and when that officer pulled up, that officer only had milliseconds to decide what to do. And the way that butcher knife, the way it was set up, and I slowed it down by frame by frame with technology, is that he had to make a decision because that was going to do some major damage at that point. But the people that sat around, that pulled out their cell phones and just watched it, and just video, just watch, I'm going to watch a murder. Yeah. I'm going to watch a murder. How dare you watch a murder? And, and Jeff, whether white or black, you or me, I, I could. I mean, I know what the joys. I know people filmed the situation, which was great. But what I'm saying is that for you to stand around to watch a murder, and and, and you have to at some point suffer. The, it's not a consequence of your actions, but you're doing the right action. But to watch a murder and to film it and then say, hey, I got it on film and yeah. and we watch this whole thing unfold. Now it's the officer's fault. Uh, I don't blame the officer. He, he had less than a, a second or two. Uh, I blame the people that were in the audience and they were watching this thing and filming it. And they thought it was a joke or something and just thought it was funny. Now it's on YouTube and everything. But, Jeff, I agree with you. It's wrong. And, and, and no one should ever film something. And, Jeff, if something were happening to you, I'm not going to sit there, oh, let me just film this. I know this guy's from WTMJ. Let yeah. me just let me just go ahead and film this thing, and um, let well, me just watch what happens to him. Well, Marcus, you know, that, that's no, thing, right? you're right. right. Thanks. And see, Marcus, it, it, is, it is kind of the, the golden rule. I mean, do, do unto others. And that's – and, look, I, I, people are texting me, well, you know, you, you can't expect people to stick their necks out. Well, all right – 
Okay, so what 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 exactly does that mean? You you see somebody drowning, and you're just going to instead of if you're a swimmer, instead of going out and trying to to save them, you're just going to pull out your cell phone and you're going to watch them drown. I mean, is that is that where we've really come to in our society? And and I, I fully acknowledge that th- there are situ- there are times when. That's not necessarily prudent. The guy pulls out the, the gun and is shooting indiscriminately. Well, okay, that, that's tough to expect just somebody, citizen, to sort of run at the person and try to, to tackle the take the gun away. Although people have done that but before. I mean, we, we've had stories about that where, I, but I think a lot of it depends on the circumstances. You know, how, how, in this case, you had a fight among teenagers, all right? And it, it was a bad fight and it was escalating, but you wonder how many opportunities that there were before it even got to the stage where the police officer had to roll up, where people, and especially, there were multiple people there. They could have just tried to separate him. They could have tried to hold him. And instead, people pull out their damn cell phones and they film this. And, and now it's like, okay, well, well somebody is, is dead. At some point in time, I mean, don't we collectively have to take responsibility and, and certainly not... Nobody asks the question of these, well, why didn't you do something instead of just standing by and filming this? And how long did you watch this fight go on? And and did she always have the knife or was this a fist fight that kind of escalated? And why didn't you try to do something? But we see the story over and over again where instead of trying to intervene and stop it before it gets bad, people just kind of cheer it on. Hey, this is great. And we'll film it. And then, you know, we wonder how these things had happened. Again, I, I think there's two stories here. First of all, I think the the police officer was legitimate in what he did. It was an unfortunate thing, but you know he, he really had very, very little choice. And if he hadn't done what he had done and the, the victim, the girl in the pink, had gotten stabbed and killed, well, you know, then there would be marches for that. But the larger question, again, to me is, what, what about the crowd and do you bear some responsibility as well? Back with more in just a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. There are heroes among us who run towards danger rather than away from it. We call them first responders. WTMJ is partnering with Waterstone Bank, IndyCar, Rev Group, Grand Prix at Road America, and Heiser Automotive. We're honoring police officers, firefighters, health care providers, and countless others who work every day to protect our families and loved ones. If you know of a first responder that deserves recognition for their duties, text the word SERVICE to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620 or go to WTMJ.com. The deadline for your submission is May 7th. It's Waterstone Bank's Salute to Service on WTMJ. I am not one of these guys that says that when it comes to pro athletes, they should just shut up and dribble. I think pro athletes, just like any of us, have the right to express their opinions on social issues and things of the like. My beef is where the athletes decide to bring that into the four corners of, of the game. I mean, and I, I've always drawn the distinction between, hey, if you want to you want to stage a, a protest, you know, you want to show up at City Hall or you want to march for whatever movement you want to march for on your own time, that's it, on your own time. When you're at work, I think it's different. And, you know, kneeling during the national anthem to make your own statement, you're, you're on your employer's time. I see that as different. Some of you disagree with me, but that's how I make the distinction there. But I, I'm, I'm really not one of these shut up and dribble guys that just because you're a pro athlete doesn't mean you have a right to to have your opinion on things having said that lebron james should be ashamed of himself you know what he has done this week is despicable and i, I think at some point in time 
you, he, he, you, there needs to be some degree of accountability. Of course, everybody knows who LeBron James is, arguably the, the best player, basketball player on the planet, may, maybe one of the greatest, certainly one of the greatest of all times, right up there with Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and a couple of the other great players. Just an incredibly talented basketball player who has made, made a lot of money through his ability to play sports. And LeBron James has become very, very active in various social justice movements. And I, I think that's, that's, all, that's all well and good. It's certainly his right to do it. Well, we were talking about the, the Columbus situation where you had the officer who rolls up and shoots the 16-year-old as she's getting ready to, to stab someone. If you haven't seen this story, LeBron James uh, decides to take to Twitter and send out a tweet. The tweet says... Your next hashtag accountability. And there he has a picture of the officer that was involved in the shooting. So he decides that he is going, the phrase is doxing, where you, you know, you reveal somebody's identity or home address or home phone number. So LeBron James, with his millions of of followers, decides to send out a, a tweet that um, targets the cust- the Columbus police officer, and it says, you're next, hashtag accountability. And, of course, the, the response is, what are you trying to accomplish here? Um, are you trying to incite violence against this Ohio police officer? And uh, I think, you know, I, I think it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. This particular tweet was met with the appropriate amount of of disgust. First of all, all right, now we know the facts, and I think most reasonable people, most reasonable people would agree that the officer behaved in a in a in a responsible manner and certainly a lawful manner. And this idea that now we're going to send out his picture, we're going to identify him through the Twitter account and then we're going to label this your next Hashtag accountability. Now, I understand you can make the argument saying, well, all all James, James wasn't trying to encourage violence against the person. He was just saying, we're putting you on notice that, you know, you're going to get the same treatment that Derek Chevron got. You know, that you're prepared to be prosecuted or whatever. But the point of this whole thing is it, it's it's a tweet which is highly damaging. And it's a tweet which has the situation which clearly, I, I think, ends up putting this particular officer at risk. It prejudges the situation, and it takes a position that is inconsistent with the facts. Now, um, I think, like I say, a number of people, including journalists, they're saying, hey, you know, we, Twitter, why are you letting James do this? I mean, this is, this is something that this is, this is reported threatening violence. I, I thought you, I thought you, you know, took these things off. I thought you wouldn't let this stuff to, um, you know, be there. Um, you know, here's one of the texts that's out there. LeBron James doxes a police officer who saved a teenage girl from being stabbed to death, demands officer be held accountable, sets new record for athlete stupidity. Um, yeah, I, I think there's that. The cop, here's another t- uh, tweet about this. The cop did nothing wrong by any reasonable standard, and now someone with 50 million followers is encouraging attacks against him. That's on top of countless news organizations lying about his actions. Decent people need to speak out. Real people will get hurt by this stuff. I think that that is a fair comment on what ended up happening. LeBron James has now deleted the tweet and said, well, I, I was just angry. Okay, well, I, I get it. I understand that. But at some point in time, 
you don't have to shut up and dribble. But when you decide that you are going to interject yourself in these things and you clearly do it in an irresponsible fashion, I think it's more than fair to call you out for doing it in an irresponsible fashion. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Mike Spaulding, birthday guy. You are a smart, incredibly well-read man. Are, are you familiar? You know who Philip Roth was? Philip Roth? Does not ring a bell immediately. Okay, well, there I, I tried to... Never tried, mind. No, I tried. Never, ne, never mind. No, <laughs> I, I tried... Philip Roth was a, he passed away about two years ago. Philip Roth was a very, very well-known American writer who sort of came to prominence in the the 60s is when his first couple things got published. He wrote um, Goodbye Columbus, which was a short story, which was made into a movie, Portnoy's Complaint, which was made into a movie in 72. And he had had a series of of books. I mean, he was constantly in print, wrote a lot of different books. Um, The most recent one of his I read was, I think, uh, a plot against America in 2004, where he envisioned what would have happened if uh, Charles Lindbergh would have run for president against Franklin Roosevelt and won. I'm not a huge fan of Philip Roth, I, I, but he's he's certainly interesting and has occupies, like I say, a huge spot in in American literature, particularly in the, the late part of the, the last century. Uh, he passed away a couple years ago. He chose. He chose a guy to write his biography, and and, and Roth was one of these kind of a, a sort of a persnickety person. He chose a guy to write his biography. The biographer's name is Blake Bailey. Blake Bailey is 57 years old. Blake Bailey has has written a number of extremely successful biographies. I mean, he's been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, for example, for, you know, one of his. Let's see, he, um, 2004, he did a biography of Richard Yates that was a finalist in the National Book Critics Circle Award. Um, he won the award for the next biography of John Cheever in 2009. So he writes biographies primarily of, of writers and stuff. And like I say, he was a uh, finalist for the Pulitzer Prize at one point in time. So he was selected to by Roth, and Roth cooperated with him. He was going to write the biography of Philip Roth. That biography is done. It was due to be released on April 6th of this month. And so what happens with books is, especially books that are, are long-awaited. This was a long-awaited sort of book. They, they send out the book to different, like, to the New York Times and to the Washington Post and to these reviewers to let them review it so when the release is getting to ready to come out, so they have the reviews and it inspires people to want to buy the book. All right, so all is going well. The book is, in general, getting very, very good reviews. Well, the wheels have come off this because here's the deal. Um, Blake Bailey is is 57 years old his his background is he was a, a teacher um, he's he's from Oklahoma originally he began his career as an eighth grade English teacher in New Orleans at a place called Lusher Middle School and he worked there for for like 20 years two decades then he left teaching to pursue writing and that's where you know he, he found his his match so okay why are we talking about this guy who cares about Philip Roth and this biography well here's the deal what happens is, over the course of the last couple weeks, really, as the book is getting reviewed and reviewed and reviewed, there have been a handful of students of Bailey's 
from his his days as a middle school teacher. This is back in the 80s and 90s who are coming forward and saying he was grooming us for for sex. You know, he he was propositioning us. He was making improper advances and all. Now, they never told anybody or they never reported it to authorities or anything like that. They didn't report it to the the headmasters at the school or anything like that. At least the headmasters at school say we didn't know any of these allegations. So this is kind of coming out of of the clear blue. On top of that, there is now a woman from 2015 who says, well, I was at this particular party and he made these unwanted sexual advances to me and he he, he attempted to rape me. And the question is, well, did, did you report this to anybody? No. Did you go to the police? No, I, I didn't. So you know, Bailey is completely and totally denying this. But the fact that these allegations emerged over the course of the last couple of weeks now has the, the publication of this book has been suspended. Um, his publisher, which is W.W. Norton, has stopped shipments and promotion of of the book, so they've put this biography on on hold. His literary agent, based on the allegations, ha- has dropped him completely. They, they've dropped him completely, and now the guy's career is essentially in tatters. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. At some point in time, do does there have to be a, a limit on, again, destroying people's career based on allegations that are, you know, 20 and 30 years old or very, very serious allegations that were not pursued at the time and, and aren't being pursued now by law enforcement. Look, I, I don't know what went on when this guy was an eighth grade middle school teacher in 1980-whatever, the 1990s. But but nobody raised, no, nobody went to the authorities. No parents said, hey, my this this guy tried to improperly approach, you know, my, my high school my high school daughter. The the administration at the school says, well, we, we, we didn't have people coming in and, and complaining and saying he sexually assaulted them. And, and some of the, the allegations aren't sexual assault. It's like he he was grooming them and, you know, whatever, whatever that necessarily means. And, of course, if if it if it happened, the guy is a sleazebag and deserves to have been fired at the time. But he says, I categorically deny this. Meanwhile, it, it's 20 and 30 years ago. How, how do I how do I go back and, and prove beyond my denial that something like this didn't happen? Similarly, when it comes from. Similarly, when it comes from the, the, this woman who says, well, he sexually assaulted me in 2015, um, he says, look, nobody filed charges. That this, this wasn't a matter that was investigated by authorities. And by the way, I categorically deny it. And yet the, the, his career, literary agent drops him. The publisher says, okay, that this book that is incredibly well-reviewed, we're, we're, not, we're not going to promote it. We're not going to sell it anymore. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I look at these things, and look, I, I don't know what the truth of any of this is, but I do say, how how can you defend yourself, and is this fair that the mere allegation from decades ago, without anything more, can end up essentially destroying your entire livelihood? And, I, I mean, I'm not even going to get into the question of, is there a statute of limitations for bad behavior? Because he says this just didn't happen. But I, I can't, he says, I, I can't, how do I prove 
that no, I, I wasn't grooming some eighth grade girl back in 1989 when here it's it's 2021, and now you're saying that, that this book that I've worked on I can't sell. 855-616-1620. How do you handle the, these allegations of decades-old misconduct or... Again, a more recent case, the woman in 2015 who says, well, he sexually assaulted me, but she chooses, she chose not to, not to raise that issue at the time, not to go to the police. So is that allegation in and of itself, is it enough to say, okay, here, we're, we're going to, we're, your, your career is on hold, forget about this book. 855-616-1620. Is that justice? We discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, if something improper happened and it needs to be investigated, in saying that though, it's amazing how the timing of these allegations takes place. The scary reality is somebody can accuse you from fifty years ago or five years or five days ago, no proof, no evidence. Allegations need to be confirmed before lifelong damage happens to an individual. Um yeah, I mean I, I think you know that's that's the situation that, that's out there, and and that's see that's the scary thing. I don't know this guy from Adam. I don't. I don't. I haven't read his other biographies, but I am sitting there thinking, okay, here you have somebody whose career is moving along. He's in his late fifties. You've had other highly well received things. Nobody has ever raised a hint of impropriety, and now all of a sudden you have a couple allegations that are unverified, never reported to authorities, and, and boom, the, the guy's career, the, the default knee-jerk position is, well, this has to be true, and, and boom, we're, we're going to stop and we're going to suspend this. And somebody says, well, okay, we're, we're going to pursue an investigation. Well, you know, we, we've been down this route before. How, how, how do you investigate an, an allegation from 30 years ago? It, it's just as a practical matter. It's almost impossible. Now, the, the, the woman who says she was sexually assaulted in 2015, that's that's sort of the same thing. But when you never go to authorities and you don't, I mean, I assume the statute of limitations is probably blown, not sure on that. But regardless, if you make the decision that you're not going to go to authorities and you're not going to file a civil lawsuit and you're you're not going to raise this, at some point in time, is is it fair to have our default position be, oh, the guy's got to be... The guy's got to be a pervert. Jeff, was the Roth book, The Plot Against America, any good? Would you recommend it? Um, I, I'm not a fan of Philip Roth in general. I mean, I, I've read a couple of his things. I certainly haven't read his entire catalog. And, no, I didn't particularly like The Plot Against America, but that's just me. Um, Jeff, this is the cancel culture at its finest. What happened to innocent until proven guilty? Now, I mean, innocent until proven guilty is a concept for, for, for criminal activity. So, I mean, it, it doesn't apply in the court of public opinion or things like that. But, but nevertheless, at some point in time, how do, how do people end up defending themselves? I mean, seriously, if you were, if you were up for some award or you had just gotten a high profile promotion or something like that, and all of a sudden you hear this, somebody comes up and says, well, you know, 35 years ago when you were working, you know, somewhere else that I, I, you know, you're accused of doing something improper. And that the person had never voiced that before, but now, now that you're in the news, suddenly you're accused of these things. <clears throat> how do you, 
defend yourself? And the answer is, is you don't. Uh, so continuing the text, Jeff, this is the cancel culture at its finest. What happened to innocent until proven guilty? I will never victim shame for taking the time to report an incident, and I'm all for an investigation. But how can you investigate decades-old hearsay? To see his career deteriorating is simply, you know, unfair. Jeff, where is the accountability or the responsibility of accusers to say something at the time to prevent further abuse? Now, again, you you can make the argument that that's that's a lot to expect an eighth grade girl, for example, to come for an eighth grade student to come forward and say, well, you know, he 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 behaved in an improper fashion towards me. But but keep in mind this: we're going back to the 1990s. This is this is decades ago, and I'm I'm not saying that. Whether, I I take no position. I don't know if he was grooming people for stuff or or not. But I am saying that. It just strikes me as being fundamentally unfair to essentially have your your life ruined based on these allegations without without more. Now, I mean, I appreciate that you have situations where, you know, you just never know about people. Bill Cosby being the greatest example of that. This guy was America's dad. And I think a lot of us, myself included, were shocked to find out of the behavior that Bill Cosby had been engaging in for for decades just absolute decades and the, the public persona of Bill Cosby completely different than apparently what was was really going on and you know shame on us for being fooled by something like that but at the same time that was a situation where you I mean it, he ended up getting charged it was proven so um, this is it um, let's see um, Jeff, it seems to be this way almost more and more frequently that these people are supposedly being sexually assaulted and they're only telling their story after decades have passed. Doesn't mean it didn't happen or that whatever happened was right or wrong. For example, the, the woman in 2015 who says she was sexually assaulted, the statement he issued said, I've, I've never had non-consensual sex with anybody. So I, I don't, I, I don't know what went on in, in that particular situation, but I do know there was nobody going to the authorities. There was nobody saying, Hey, I was, I was sexually assaulted and there were no charges that were brought. It wasn't even investigated to the best of my knowledge by the uh, legal you know, authorities. I mean, there was never even an investigation to determine this one way or the other, and yet now the guy, the, the book is that. Um, let's see, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, Jeff, why is Roth's legacy impacted by this guy's sexual assault allegations seems wrong. Well, that, that's the other thing. If you're looking forward to reading a biography about, you know, Philip Roth, now they're, they're kind of in, you know, they're entwined in a fashion that, you know, I guess, I guess the argument is if this guy is a, a pervert or if he's, you know, a, a rapist or, or whatever, you don't want to see him profiting. You know, you don't want this to be a bestseller book. So, you know, because we don't want him profiting from from that if it turns out that he's a despicable guy. But but who who ends up making you know that decision? You know, who, who ends up making that call? And I think that's the that's the very troubling thing about all this. So the bottom line is that, you know, I mean, innocent until proven guilty in the court of law, but certainly not that way when it comes to allegations. And if you were one of those people looking forward to reading the Philip Roth book, you you might have to put that on hold at least for a little while. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. The criminal complaint has now been issued against the 
24-year-old Racine man who is allegedly responsible for the, the, the murders at that Kenosha Tavern the other day. And it's just, I, I read this, and it's just, it, it's, I shake my head because it just demonstrates how people nowadays just have the impulse control of a fruit fly. No offense to fruit flies. I mean, here, here's the deal. The guy that's been charged, his name, he's 24 years old. His name is Riqueo Vincent. And so here's what the, the thing. There was a fight between Vincent and the friend group began after he bumped shoulders with someone. According to the complaint, he suffered facial injuries in the fight. The complaint states that the tavern owner kicked out some members of the friend group after the fight and then took Vincent to the bathroom to calm him down. Then the owner brought Vincent to the outdoor patio and asked another patron to keep an eye on him so he could check to make sure the other people he had kicked out had left. Vincent was bleeding from the nose. Then, according to the patron, a couple other guys walk up to Vincent in an aggressive manner and say, what's up? Vincent answered, you know what's up, pulls out a gun and begins shooting around 12.45 a.m. He struck Gaston Stevenson and other patrons. He then jumped over a fence into a parking lot. Gaston died from a gunshot wound to the chest. The medical examiner determined Stevenson died from four gunshot wounds to his head, neck, chest, and back. The three who were injured were struck in the elbow, chest, and abdomen. Uh, Officials previously said those who were injured were struck by stray bullets and were not the targets. After the gunfire on the patio, a third guy ran out of the front entrance of the tavern, crossed the street. Vincent fired on him. He returned two shots from behind a car. The next time he emerged from the car, Vincent's bullets struck him. He was driven into a hospital. They drove away, later pronounced dead. It's just, in interviews with police, Vincent said he was at the tavern, had a gun, Never a good thing. He also said things popped off and I blacked out and blanking went down. So you you have people that are dead. You have people that are shot because guys bump into each other at 1230 at night in, in a bar and people are armed, and and then they just end up shooting. Now I understand some people want to see this as a as a lesson about too many guns, and we need more gun control laws and things like that. Although uh, there's all sorts of there's a ton of laws that would make the conduct of these people illegal. But the but the overriding thing is, I mean, is life really this cheap? That that this is the reaction. You know, you you get into an argument, and somebody bumps in you, bumps you, and your your lip is bleeding, your nose is bleeding, or whatever. So your immediate reaction is to pull out a gun and start executing everybody. It's just, it's a scary world. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, very glad to have you with us. All right. One of the big trials of the year in Wisconsin is going to roll around probably sometime in November. It is going to be the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Everybody knows the Kyle Rittenhouse story in Kenosha last, what, last August. Um, you, you had the the shooting of Jacob Blake, the police officer responsible for that has subsequently been, been cleared. Uh, what happened was the first two nights, law enforcement was completely and totally overwhelmed, and you had riots. And, yes, I understand some people are reluctant to call them riots, but you had protests that that quickly devolved into riots. You have tens of millions of dollars worth of damage to, to buildings in, in Kenosha. You had law enforcement people that were injured because, as law enforcement will tell you, 
they were overwhelmed. They were outnumbered. You had people coming to Kenosha from outside areas and stirring things up. By the third night, though, I think law enforcement had gotten its act together. You had National Guard troops with a clear mission that were on the ground, and and things were, were by and large under control. Kyle Rittenhouse was part of, of an outside group who decided that they were going to come to Kenosha and they were going to protect property. And everybody knows the story. He's a 17-year-old guy. He's got the gun. He's he's outside some auto parts store or whatever, and he, he ends up shooting three different people, killing two. He's on trial. His defense is going to be that it was, it was self-defense, that he was being attacked by this mob. I, it, it's going to be a very, very controversial trial. And I understand that uh, people's opinions on this are, are all over the map. And trust me, we'll have lots of opportunities to talk again about the Kyle Rittenhouse case a- as we get closer to the trial, which right now has been put off. I, I don't think it's going to be, I think November is when it's going to be. And I think it's... As I said before, I think it's appalling the DA's office in Kenosha agreed to allow that case to be continued that long. It's just that this is a matter that it candidly should have been tried a while ago and to continue it so that the trial is more than a year after the event is just, I I think, a, a form of legal malpractice in my opinion. But that's the case. So anyhow. Kyle Rittenhouse has become a cause celeb. By that, I mean there are a lot of people who feel that he should never have been charged and that this is all, you know, that he, he's really, he, he's a hero, that what he was doing was standing up to the mob. That's one way of looking at it. And there have been people that have been donating money to his defense fund. And, and that's one of the things that has been going on, and that's one of the see, things that you see where he, he's been able to finance you know, his, his defense. One of the issues has been whether or not a lot of that money, which is donated um, for his defense, whether or not that's really going to his defense or whether there's people that were kind of siphoning it off, etc. But, But regardless, he, he's generated hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations from people who, you know, feel that he's been unjustly accused and, you know, deserves, you know, deserves to be freed. Almost $600,000, for example, in um, were raised as part of one online sort of fundraiser that was done. People, people sending money. All right, well, here's the story. Uh, the Guardian, which is a very liberal uh, paper in the United Kingdom, they, they hacked into some, I, don't, I shouldn't say The Guardian, I don't know, someone hacked into the records of this kind of GoFundMe operation where people were sending money to to the Kyle Rittenhouse Defense Fund. Someone hacked into that and then released to The Guardian the, the names and contact points of people who donated money to Rittenhouse. So follow me on this. You know, it, this stuff is supposed to be anonymous. It's It's not... A public record. It's not like it's um, you know campaign financing where the candidates have to report it. That this was this was a hack into this. But then the people get the information, they release it, and the Guardian starts running with it and saying, okay, these are these are some of the people that gave the donations. All right, all of which brings us to a lieutenant on the Norfolk, Virginia Police Department. His name is William Kelly. All right, William Kelly donated $25 to the Rittenhouse Defense Fund, the the Rittenhouse Defense Fund on this, you know, crowdfunding site. 
apparently on the site when he was like filling out the stuff, he checked that he wished to remain anonymous. But but at least according to the, the records from this hack, even though he said he wished to remain anonymous, he appeared to use his Norfolk City email address for the donation. So he, he's he's using his his work email address for the donation, and when when you make the donation, apparently you can you can include a message. I've, I've never donated to something like this, and his message said, "God bless, thank you for your courage. Keep your head up. You've done nothing wrong. Every rank and file police officer supports you. Don't be discouraged by actions of the political class of law enforcement leadership." Okay, so that's what he says, and he sends off the 25 bucks, and nobody knows anything about this. It was 25 bucks, but now that there's been this hack, somebody has traced this donation back to this guy through the fact that he apparently listed his official account. The city of Norfolk has now fired him, came in this week, and they fired him saying that, and he's been on, he's been on the job for 19 years. Um, say that they say that his conduct had violated the department's policies and undermined the public's faith in law enforcement. Now you got to kind of read between the lines, but I, I don't get the sense that they're really firing him based on the fact that he listed his office email account. Because my guess is there's all sorts of people that use their office email accounts for like some personal stuff. But what it really appears that they're focusing on is the fact that they they believe that by by donating this money in the first place to the Rittenhouse Defense Fund and then by saying, hey, you know, law enforcement supports you. They say that this erodes the trust between the Norfolk Police Department and those they are sworn to serve. The city of Norfolk has a standard of behavior for all employees, and we will hold the staff accountable. Uh, the police chief says a police department cannot do its job when the public loses trust with those whose duty is to serve and protect them. We do not want perceptions of any individual officer to undermine the relations between the Norfolk Police Department and the community. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Did the guy deserve to be fired for donating the money to Rittenhouse and sending this statement along with him about, hey, you know, we support you. And I guess the related question is, if if this were a, a different cause, same sort of situation, but the officer decided, I want to donate $25 to, I don't know, pick, you know, pick, pick the issue. Let, let's say that, you know, there's a, there's a, a defense fund being, you know, uh, generated for, I don't know, social justice protesters, BLM protesters, for example, who are, um, have, have been arrested in, in Portland or Minnesota or wherever. If same sort of thing, if he had donated money to that, would he have been fired? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Is the context of this text enough? And let's, let's for the sake of argument, just kind of put aside the question that on this, this thing he, he listed, he apparently listed his work contact. Because, again, I don't think that's the basis why they're firing him. I think it's more they're firing him, and they're being pretty clear about this, that he's – He's donating money to somebody who's accused of of a crime. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. You're listening to Jack Wagner on WTMJ. 
855-616-1620. Jeff, anyone who uses their work email for any purpose but work runs the risk of being fired. When you use that email for a hot button issue, you have just upped the ante. The officer definitely has the right to his beliefs on said issue, but when he included it in the email, he stopped representing himself and started representing the city. I get that, but again, I don't, my sense is they're not firing him because on this, this, this email that he sent, it, it, that, that it, it came from the, the city. I don't get the, they're, that they're saying, okay, you violated our email policy. Undoubtedly, because there's all sorts of people, public employees, that use their their email to communicate on on personal sort of things. Now, I mean, I, I think what the real essence of this is is that they said, "Look, this Kyle Rittenhouse is accused of killing two people and and you know, severely injuring a third, and here you have somebody in law enforcement who is expressing his opinion about this and saying, "Hey, law enforcement stands with you." I mean, I, I think it's the it's the donation. But it's also the fact that that he chose to express himself, and I don't believe the result would have been any different if he had done this on his personal email. So for the sake of our conversation, let's put aside the fact that he used his public email, because I... I agree that raises a whole different issue. But if I am correct, and the reason they're really firing him is because, hey, here's this guy saying, hey, I, I'm in law enforcement, and I, I think law enforcement stands beside you. And the Norfolk Police Department says, hey, we, we find this to be an embarrassing position. You've got to go. That That's where my issue is. Does, does, does he – where does the First Amendment right end? And are we going to fire everybody then who make – donations to, you know, controversial sort of issues. For example, if there was a defund the police movement that was out there, you had a guy who was, I, I don't know, um, you know, a, 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 an employee of, of Norfolk in some capacity, whether it's law enforcement or not, and, and they're contributing to a defund the police movement. Should they lose their job because of that? And, and that, that's where it's a scary, slippery slope. And if you've been a regular listener to this program, you know that I, I have no love for Kyle Rittenhouse, and we'll get into that more in the, in the future. And I, I think Rittenhouse has surrounded himself with some some really sort of shady people and um, you know ties to certain white supremacist groups and all that. But I guess the question is for people who have donated money to him does that mean that that they should lose their jobs let's talk to gianni in montello hi gianni yes good afternoon jeff um hey listen uh, let me preface my my thoughts uh, and, and echo what you just said i am in no way supportive of of, of this written house character and his his right-wing wacko uh you know um Groups that he may have been associated with, I, I, you know, the whole thing is. I'm a business owner, and I, I have insurance. I would never defend my property with a, with an AR-15. But listen, um, if if the if the officer has has uh, sentiments in that direction, uh, it's his own personal money, and I, I think that he ha- he has the freedom to believe what he wants without losing his job. Now, I, I may I, I'm not going to donate to, to Wittenhouse's defense fund, nor are you. But if he if he chooses to do that, that has that has nothing to do with his employment status. Right. So perhaps who should, perhaps perhaps the the police chief should be let go. Uh, you know, well, instead of this there's officer. clearly a lawsuit. There's clearly going to be a lawsuit involved. In this and, and here's the other thing that that complicates this. He he did it anonymously. It's it's not. See, I think you can make an argument 
that, for example, if he had decided to to go go public and say, "Look, I'm here. here I'm going to hold a press conference, and, and I'm a lieutenant. I've been on the Norfolk Police Department for 20 years, and I think the prosecution of Kyle Rittenhouse is nothing. It's it's trumped up, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And and if he had gone in a public sort of fashion and arguably and intentionally used the the weight of his position. To try to, you know, influence opinion on this. I, I think maybe, you know, th- then you've got it. Hey, you know, you're, you're embarrassing your employer and you're creating this rift in the community by, by doing that. But, but he didn't do that. The, the donation was anonymous. It's not like he went public with this. It, it was anonymous and it was only because of an illegal hack of the crowdfunding thing that, that the name came up. And the only reason this became public wasn't because he intended it to become public. It wasn't because he intended to use his position to do it. It was only because, again, of this illegal hack, and then the information is distributed to The Guardian, and then it goes to The New York Times, and they run with it and all those things. So, I mean, to me, that's another factor that is out there. I just, I'm troubled by this. And, again, it has nothing to do with, you know, whether or not the guy sh- was, was right or wrong in giving Rittenhouse 25 bucks or, or whatever. It was whether your career of 19 years gets flushed down the toilet simply because you made what you thought was an anonymous donation and it's to a cause that it, at least, you know, once it becomes public that you made those donations, that it gives your employer some heartbreak. Um, if It would be cleaner, I acknowledge, if he had done it on his personal email account, which does make you wonder, why did you list your government email account on this? But that's a whole other story. Back with more in just a couple of minutes. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Melissa, all right, I, I should have, I did something that was not wrong, but I, I should have perhaps given a disclaimer to it. Your lead story, of course, was the, the battle between Congressman Glenn Grothman and Cardi B, the rapper, and and Grothman was on the House floor kind of denouncing her for this performance she gave at the Grammys, a, a show, a, a song that she sings, and, and it, it's called WAP, W-A-P. And, and Mike Spaulding and I were talking about this just a little while ago. It, it, I, I, I choose not to get into the, the social battle between Cardi B and Glenn Grothman, but it is interesting that that song, WAP is an acronym, and, and we there, we can't say that on the radio. We we can't tell people what that that means. No, absolutely no. not. Ab- absolutely not. <laughs> right? It's, it's it's just not. It's not even. You would close. no longer have a job. Well, if <laughs> well, or at least I'd be in a meeting. That's no, true. No, yeah. It might be Gru that wouldn't have the job because they'd be called and said, "Why did you let him do that? You have the dump button. You're supposed to yeah. dump him." No, but I wouldn't put him in that position. But but okay. So I I was I was saying that, and of course when when you say that that then motivates a lot of the people who are listening to us to go. To, you know, to try to do their own investigation mm-hmm. and determine what it is. And I, I have a handful of texts saying, boy, sure glad I wasn't at work when I you know, put that, that, that in there. Or else, if, you know, if your computer is being monitored at work, it's kind of like, huh, why, why are you looking up that particular thing? <laughs> right. Well, but, a lot of times it's blocked on work computers. Anything that sort of is related app. to anything bad, it'll say that you're not accessible to this uh, website. Well, right, yeah, I, and, and I get that for, yes, I, I, and I get that a lot for even, even benign things. I mean, Correct, when, yes. You know, when you do 
what what we do for a living, and particularly what I do for a living, you know, you're you're kind of like running down stuff and you're thinking about things, and it's like, okay, well, what's what's exactly this? And I'll type this in, and then you'll get this big, you know, danger <laughs> thing and the big red X. flags, and it's yeah, the, the, the big X, and big it's X. why are you trying to access that website? And it could and be like, a, a word that just is a normal word, but it may be associated with well, something, well, you know, what, yeah, what, whatever. Or or and sometimes I admit, I mean, sometimes I'm trying to do. I'm, you're not. I'm not talking about going to like porn sites or anything, but you're you're just trying to. Because that that you know dovetails into some of the yesterday sure, we were talking sure. about New York City you know, legalizing prostitution effectively. So you know you might be trying to do some research on that. You're using some of these keywords, and it's like, oh, don't you I'm visit guessing that, that website. Word didn't, yeah, it didn't show right. up. But it, yes, so that would be my my second piece of advice. If you're curious about what that is an acronym for. Don't wait, wait, wait till you get home to do the, to do the search. Don't well, I guess do you it, could on, do your it on your phone. I don't, well, that's, I, I don't know, but don't, <laughs> don't do it from the workplace. That, that's, that's all, that's, that's all I'm saying. And maybe if I can figure out a way to, maybe if I can figure out a way to talk about it without actually saying what the acronym is or what the song covers, maybe, maybe we'll do it tomorrow. But Glenn Brothman just getting in, into the culture wars with, with both feet and him and, him but, and Cardi B. I was saying in the newsroom, these are two names I never thought I would say together. Glenn right. Grothman and Cardi B. Right, and then you throw in Megan the the Stallion, which because she was performing with Cardi B mm-hmm. that song, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you put those all together, and and right, it, it's those aren't three names that you necessarily thought you'd see on the same billboard. Not at all, no. All right, so that's it. All right, but speaking of doing things at work, how about that for a segue here? As more and more people get vaccinated, there is more and more pressure on employers to bring some or all of their workers back. Now, now hear me out on this. I, I don't think, I think one of the things that's going to come from the pandemic is I think there, there's going to be, in lots of industries, there, there's people who are at home and have been able to work at home for the last year or so, and they've been able to work at home successfully. I think there's going to be a lot of employers who are, are just going to say, you know what? This this is working fine, and our employees like it. We're we're seeing that there's not a drop off in productivity, and the nature of our business. And this is going to vary from business to business. So hear me out on this. The nature of our business is we don't need to have somebody you know here five days a week from nine until five. And and I think there's all sorts of advantages for employers that make that decision. Namely, you're not going to need as much office space if you've got four four floors in, in an expensive, you know, downtown office tower, maybe you say, you know what, we don't need four floors and, and maybe maybe we only need two and we can save all that sort of money. So I think for some people that have been able to work at home, employers have had their eyes open and said, okay, for, for some jobs, etc., this is fine. There are other employers who can't wait to get their employees back for a, just a variety of reasons. And I know, for example, I think where I work now, I, I've been largely here during the entire pandemic, but most of our of my teammates ha- have not. They've been they've been working from home. I think that you know our management feels that there's that there's a synergy, and, and they want to, within reason, they want to figure out ways to bring people back as quickly as they can because they think that there there's a value to having you know people together and bouncing ideas off them. And and I I, I see that as well. I mean, it's going to vary from business to business, from employer to employer, from industry to industry. But there are a number of employers who are unquestionably right now looking at figuring out, okay, now that more people are getting vaccinated, now that 
the, the numbers of, of COVID cases and hospitalizations are, are down now that it seems like there there's light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to this pandemic. Hopefully it's not a train coming the other way. But I think there's more and more employers that are saying, okay, we, we need to get people back. And, and because we think our particular business works better if we have people coming in. So the, the question, what I want to talk with you about is how – how are employers how do employers do that our number is 855-616-1620 that's the accident mortgage talk and text line if you have been working remotely or or largely remotely because of the pandemic not not you, you know you've been working at home for the last 5 years that's just your policy but if because of the pandemic you have been working at home working remotely whatever are you in a hurry to get back or if your employer were to say, look, I, I want people coming back, you know, unless you've got a really good reason, unless there's some compelling health reason or something like that, I, I, that you stay home, we want you back in the office and we're, we want you back in the office by May 1st or May 15th or whatever that number is. If you're, if you've been working at home over the pandemic and the employer, your employer is now going to say, we want you back, are you anxious to come back or don't you want to come back? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I guess put another way, once employers start requiring that people come back into the office, do you think people are going to go along with that? Or is that going to start people looking for new jobs? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There was a story in the local paper the other day. Headline is, Milwaukee employers think it will take some convincing for employees to leave their home offices. I mean, is that true? Will you need to be convinced to leave? We discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, so if you've been working remotely over the course of the last year or so, and your employer has made the decision that they want to start bringing the employees back into the office for, for whatever reason, some employers I don't think are going to make that decision, but others want to get them back for a variety of reasons. Are, are you going to need convincing, or are you ready to, to get back? Let's start with Ray in Illinois. Hi, Ray. Hi, Jeff. How are, you, how are you doing today? I'm good. What do you think? Good, good. Well, I'm ready to go back tomorrow. As a matter of fact, I was telling Gru, uh, I mean, our offices are open. There's nobody there, but our offices are open. But there actually have been people that have been going into the office, and I'm probably going to start doing it like one day a week mm-hmm. next week just to have some place to go. Um, so I'm, I'm eager to get back. Now, I'm fully vaccinated, and I've had my two weeks you right. know, after my second shot and everything. Um I, what, what, what my company is, that I work for is telling us is that starting probably in June or July, that they're going to put us on, most of us on what they call a hybrid schedule where, you know, some in the office and some work at home. And that, but that it, as long as, you know, for example, if you want to work at home full time and the people that, you know, your management and the people you work with are comfortable with that, that you can do that. On the other hand, if you want to go in five days a week, you can do that. But I think they really want us, most of us to be on a hybrid schedule. So, so what, what are you going to uh, choose to do? I mean, if, if you look into your crystal I'm, ball, what do you think? I'm gonna I'm gonna prob- I'm gonna go back at least three days a week. Uh, I depend on some transportation due to right. a, because of a vision impairment, and so um, 
if I want to get a subscription for that where I don't have to call them every day, I have to go at least three days a week. So I'm going to do at least three a week and probably four. Got it. Okay, thanks for the call. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, how about you? If, if you're... If you've been working at home and you know that, all right, at least at a certain point in time, you're, you're going to be told that you have to come back or that you're going to be back on one of those hybrid scales or something like that. Because the truth of the matter is, as as more and more people get vaccinated, the the, the reality is it, it's going to be the employers that are going to be making the decisions for most people. And it's going to be, okay, if we've decided that for our particular business model, we we want we want people back in the offices. We want that we want that that synergy that's there. We want people bouncing ideas off each other. You know, we 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 think that it's it's easier to keep track of people. You know, and and, and again, it depends on what the business is. There's no right or wrong answer. It's a decision that companies make. But if if you're told, all right, you know, we're we're looking at bringing people back, are you in fact going to go back? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Candidly. I, I, I like being in the office, and, and you know, when, when we first started shut down the office, I did my show from, from my home office for oh, about 12 or 13 weeks, and, and actually we proved that we, we could do it. And then I, I did it for, I think, two weeks when I had COVID in November, and then another couple of weeks earlier this year when I slipped on a stair and sprained my foot, and I just, I just couldn't get around. But, you know, it, we, we can do it, and there, there's, there's really no, no loss from the perspective of what I do for a living, I, I don't think people can really tell, you know, where where I am. But that's not to say that you don't miss some of the the interaction with your your coworkers and bouncing ideas and things like that. Off, there, there's values of both. But I think at the end of the day, the employer gets to make the, the call, and I think more and more employers are going to be making the decision that at least. At least, if if not full time, at least in a hybrid sort of fashion, like our first caller Ray was talking about, they're going to want the uh, employees back. Um, Jeff, I'm a floor installer, right? Well, you obviously haven't been working at home. Get them back to work. It's been tough the past year trying to do flooring projects in houses full of people. Well, that's kind of one of the interesting things as well. On the one hand, it's easier to schedule stuff because you don't have to arrange to have somebody there when the floor guy is going to be there or the plumber is going to be there or whatever. But the flip side is, yes, you've got people underfoot. Jeff, I think it depends on the working conditions. If my boss, um, let's see, if my boss, if my coworkers were too noisy and the bathrooms were worse than airport ones, I'd be dreading it. Thankfully, those are no longer my working conditions. Jeff, I'm not looking forward to returning on site. I save so much time not going to the office anymore. I find myself working additional time and later hours. My productivity has gone way up. That, of course, is the, the appeal of one of the many appeals of continuing to work at home. If you're in a job they're allowed to do it because you 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 don't have to spend a half hour or 45 minutes commuting you don't have to worry about you do if, if you're somebody that has to pay to park in a particular place you don't have to worry about those sort of hassles you just kind of wake up and have your cereal and go to wherever your office is and get on your computer and do it but it, it does in fact depend on the different um, jobs jeff i'm not excited to go back they are still requiring masks, social distancing, and I don't really see a point when I can do my job from home as I have done from 
the past, for the past year. So you do have those different elements. Jeff, I work for a major mechanical contracting firm in the Green Bay area. All office staff was brought back into the office as of April 5th in a staged increase. Many people were working back at the office prior to that date already, um, some though out the past year. It's both good and somewhat disappointing to be back. I appreciated working in the convenience of my home office, but I realize we are slightly more effective working as a team under the same roof. Yeah, it, 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 um, it, 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 you, you do miss people. I mean, it, you know, and I, I mean, I interact with folks, you know, and they'll email me and stuff, but they're, I mean, I always made a point in all the years I've been here. I always made a point of, for example, walking into our sales department and just, you know, spending five minutes just talking to the different sales reps. How are you doing? What's this? What can I help you on? Anything I can help you on this and all. And in, in many cases, while we'll still talk, I, I haven't, I, I don't see them. And you do kind of, you do kind of miss that. Uh, bottom line is, I think that for a lot of employers, they are going to now start demanding that people come back. And I, I think people need to get ready for that because there are these employers who are going to make the decision saying, you know, we, we think it's in the interest of the company to do that. That being said, I do think work in some workplaces has been forever changed. And what that means for downtown offices, say, I don't think any of us know so far. Okay, 2.54, let's take a quick break. When we come back, well, I have a pretty good idea what Eric and Melissa have on their minds for this afternoon. Stick around.